Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea is sometimes referred to as a deathbed prophecy. It preserves for us a word that was spoken into the spiritual life of northern Israel just before their total collapse as a nation. Hosea ministered in the 8th century B.C. We believe that he began his ministry as a very young man. Some say that he was as young as 18 or 19 years old. It appears that he ended his ministry in exile in the southern kingdom just before the complete annihilation of Samaria, the capital city, and last outpost of the north in 722 B.C. He was roughly contemporary with Jonah and Amos in the north and Micah and Isaiah in the south. He lived during very interesting times. At the beginning of his life and ministry, his country was near the end of an extended season of peace and prosperity. Their main enemy, Assyria, had been distracted for a generation with problems to their north and east. And that respite allowed Israel to grow their economy and to experience an unprecedented standard of living. However, they did not use this peace and prosperity to worship the Lord and to serve the poor. On the contrary, it caused them to forget the Lord and to abuse the poor. You can hear that concern in the writings of Amos, which come from roughly the same time. Amos 2.6 says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Closed quote. So it seems like the richer Israel got, the less they cared for the poor. They're Wealth made them arrogant, cold, and indifferent, and God judged them for it. In Amos 2.12, he continued the indictment. He said, You made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So, in order to protect their wealth and their standard of living, they actually corrupted the religious life of the nation. They didn't want any talk of purity and holiness. They didn't want prophets rebuking them for their sin. They wanted smooth religion that wouldn't judge them or remind them of their wickedness. And they became very cosmopolitan. They dabbled in the religion and spirituality of the region. This trend began at the very birth of the nation. When the northern tribes split from Judah and Benjamin in the days of Rehoboam, son of Solomon, their new king, Jeroboam I, knew that if the people continued to go down to Jerusalem year after year for the feasts and to worship at the temple, eventually the legitimacy of his dynasty would be called into question. Israel, of course, had been a theocracy, so priest and king, temple and throne were intertwined. So Jeroboam knew that he had to change the religion of the northern tribes. And so he introduced the deadly virus of syncretism. He set up golden calves in the north and in the south, and he instructed the people to worship God in the manner of the nations. Many of the prophets identify that as the beginning of the end 
of northern Israel. Things got even worse under Ahab and his famously pagan wife, Jezebel, who lived and reigned in the mid-9th century BC, thus about a hundred years before the events narrated in Hosea. Jezebel was a passionate worshiper of Baal and Asherah, Canaanite deities involved with fertility, both in terms of agriculture and also human reproduction. The worship of fertility gods and goddesses was notoriously sexual in nature, and the introduction of these things into the heart of the nation only accelerated their corruption and decline. They were religiously compromised, and they were politically unstable. You will notice in the introduction of the book that Hosea mentions four kings of Judah, but only one king of Israel, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, or as he is often called, Jeroboam II. Now, the most likely reason why Hosea doesn't even bother to mention the other kings of Israel that followed Jeroboam is because none of them reigned for that long, and none of them ever really consolidated their hold on the throne. Unlike Judah in the south, where all of the kings were from the line and dynasty of David, and where sons generally followed fathers onto the throne, in the north, there was constant chaos and instability. Kings were forever being assassinated and replaced by their usurpers, who were then themselves assassinated and replaced in turn. It was hard to even know who was in charge in northern Israel. So they were rich, but they were religiously compromised, politically unstable, and blissfully unaware of the judgment that was hurtling towards them. That is the backdrop for this prophecy. Into that historical and cultural context, God sent a prophet. And more than a prophet, God sent a living sign. Hosea did not just tell a story or deliver a sermon. He lived a prophetic oracle against the nation. God told him to marry a prostitute, a woman of whoredom, and to have children of whoredom by her as a sign against the nation. God was saying, this is how you are to me. I am your husband and you have not been faithful to your covenant vows. You have shamed me and disgraced me for no reason and it will not stand. That's the startling message of Hosea. And that's the main metaphor in the book. It's not the only metaphor, but it is the main metaphor. And it is certainly the one we remember most. The message of Hosea is that God is a covenant-keeping God, but he will not be mocked. He will discipline and chastise. He will take extreme measures to purify and refine his people. He will go to extreme lengths to heal us of our infidelity. He will put us through the ringer, but not to destroy us ultimately, not to disown us ultimately, but to restore us to our original love and fidelity. It was originally a passionate plea to a dying nation. It became a warning cry to the southern kingdom and was subsequently endorsed as a paradigm of the gospel by the apostles of Jesus Christ. Michael Barrett, the Old Testament commentator, puts it this way. He says, Hosea's unselfish love for Gomer symbolizes generally God's gracious love for his people. It typifies specifically Christ's self-sacrificing love for his church, closed quote. So, 
This is a message to a dying nation that becomes a warning to a drifting nation that serves as a picture of the gospel to every nation in every dispensation. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore a son. So here we have the central metaphor of the text. Verse 2 tells us that the very first thing that God said to this young man, Hosea, was, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. So this was Hosea's first job as a prophet. He didn't get to deliver any entry-level prophetic messages. This was his first assignment out of the gate, go marry a wife of whoredom. And that sets the tone for this entire narrative right off the bat. Remember, people call Hosea the deathbed prophet. So this is all urgency all the time. Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. The brother's probably 19 years old. By the way, this book, Hosea, scholars say, had a huge influence on Jeremiah. If you study the book side by side, you can see that. In fact, Martin Buber said that basically Jeremiah is a posthumous disciple of Hosea. And it's easy to understand that. There was similarity even in their calling. This, this brother's probably 19 years old. Jeremiah was also called as a teenager. But God actually told Jeremiah not to marry. So here's an early takeaway for you. To serve the Lord is to give him sovereignty even over your marital situation. The Apostle Paul knew about that, right? Jeremiah knew about that. John the Baptist knew about that. Hosea knew about that. To serve the Lord is to allow him to say, marry or don't marry, depending on my need, not your need. Hosea is told to marry a wife of whoredom. Now, scholars and linguists debate back and forth as to what precisely this means. Some say that it means that she was a young lady with a whorish bent to her heart. So she wasn't a whore when he married her, but God saw and knew that she would become one in time. And that works thematically because that's one of the main gospel points in the story. The message is that God chose us even though he saw in advance our whorish heart. God knew we would go astray, and yet he loved us anyway. That's the gospel point. And so it may be that that's the situation here. He married a 16 or 17-year-old virgin who had corruption in her heart and who became a whore or prostitute later. Now, others say that it means just what it says, that he went out and married a prostitute. Derek Kidner takes it that way. He says, the harsher view that Gomer was a whore already seems to me the right one, closed quote. The Jerusalem Bible is pretty direct and straight to the point with its translation. It translates verse two this way. Go, marry a whore and get children with a whore for the country itself has become nothing but a whore by abandoning Yahweh, closed quote. Now, by the way, if, if you're starting to get a little bit offended by how often we're using the word whore, 
you should probably know that even that translation that I just read left one whore untranslated. The word whore is used four times in the Hebrew of verse 2, but is only translated three times into English. So the translations are cautious, but we can't avoid this. This text is meant to be alarming. This text is meant to be bracing. So we need to get used to that kind of language because it is the central metaphor of the text. Hosea marries a whore, either a woman who will become one or a woman who is one already. Either way, he knew what he was getting and he chose her and loved her anyway. That is the main point. His relationship with this woman symbolizes God's relationship with his covenant people. He knows them and loves them anyway. She is unfaithful. God chastises and banishes, but then also forgives, pursues, and restores. That's the remarkable flow of this relationship and the central message of the text. Hosea marries this woman, Gomer. And the Lord blesses them with a son. We pick up the story in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So, Each of the children born to this marriage are given symbolic names. They, too, are going to be part of this message that God is preaching to the nation, which I'm sure was very hard on them. Remember, this is an urgent story. And so, yes, extreme measures are being employed. The fate of northern Israel was not a fait accompli. Derek Kidner says here, oracles like these are shouts of warning, not irrevocable sentences, close quote. So, yes, it is a heavy thing to use a child as a prophetic signboard, but the fate of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of people was at stake. So this baby was given a prophetic name. His name was to be Jezreel, which would be like calling your child Auschwitz or Pearl Harbor. If you did that, everyone would know that you're making a point. Jezreel was the place where Jehu had slaughtered the family line of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, God had told him to do that. But one of the things we learn in the story, and I'm sure Hosea made this point every time he explained his son's weird name. The point is that when you're called to do something by God, he will judge you for how you do it. God told Jehu to destroy the family of Ahab and Jezebel. But Jehu was a murderous thug, and he went way beyond his original commission. He also killed Ahaziah, the king of Judah, which he was not told to do, and attacked and slaughtered a party of Ahaziah's relatives, 42 people, in fact, which again, he was not told to do. So even though God had used Jehu to destroy Ahab, he was now judging Jehu for exceeding his commission. And the point is that just because you have a commission from God, That doesn't mean you can conduct yourself however you like. That was true of Jehu, and it was true of the nation as a whole. And that is why Hosea is told to name his son Jezreel. It was so that he could have a thousand conversations with his friends and neighbors explaining that just because you are Israel, just because you are the chosen people, doesn't mean you can behave 
any way you like. That was the point of the name. Though I'm sure it rested heavy on the boy who bore it. Verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now, this second child is introduced differently than the first. This second child is the daughter of Gomer, but she is not said to be the daughter of Hosea. It seems as if Gomer has begun to play the whore. And so this young girl is to be given the name No Mercy as a sign and symbol that God is about to cut off the northern tribes from his love and familial care. He will no longer protect them. And that, of course, will leave them naked and vulnerable before their enemies. Verse 8. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Again, the language here implies that this third child, like the second, is a child of whoredom. It is the child of Gomer, but not biologically the child of Hosea. And he is to declare that publicly by naming the child not mine. Again, horrific for the child. And obviously for Gomer and Hosea too. Their difficult marriage has become a public sermon to the nation. I can't even imagine what that was like. But the deeper tragedy here is that by the time this child was born, the breach between God and northern Israel had reached the breaking point. God is saying to the nation through the child, you are not my people and I am not your God. Michael Barrett is so helpful here. He explains the meaning of these two names, the names of the two children of Hordom. He says, the message of Lo-Ruhama, which was the first child, and Lo-Ami, which is the second, or the second and third children of Hordom, is as tragic as it is transparent. No mercy results in national disaster. Not my people reveals what seems to be a reversal of the covenant, closed quote. Now, he goes on to explain how that could be. And, and we often struggle here because the Bible seems to say at times that the covenant is unconditional. But then at other times, you see evidence that it is in some sense conditional. We're seeing it here. So how does that go together? And he says, although the covenant is ultimately unconditional because of God's saving purpose in Christ, Individual participation was always conditional on, or perhaps better, evidenced by faith in the promise. Hosea's generation had forsaken the Lord and owned no claim to God's promise. Therefore, not only did God disown them, but he punctuated the disclaimer by saying, I will not be your God, closed quote. So, God was not abandoning his covenant with Israel, but he was about to reject an entire generation of individually faithless people. The covenant community was about to undergo a massive 
and transformative purge because of widespread and persistent unbelief and immorality. We pick up the story in verse 10, and we immediately notice a surprising change in tone. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. I love the heading given to this paragraph by the Bible Speaks Today commentary. They label everything from 110 to 2-1 as a rift in the clouds. And that's exactly right. The book of Hosea is filled with oracles of horrifying and deafening doom. And yet, it is not without periodic glimpses of hope and mercy. And that is exactly what we're seeing here. God just said, a national disaster is coming. God just disowned an entire generation of faithless, idolatrous, and immoral people. And yet, here he is saying that this is not the end of the covenant story, though it is a particularly painful and shameful chapter. But the sun will rise again. Joy will come in the morning. After the purge, there will be a restoration. The children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. There will be a grafting back in. Just as it may be said to a generation, you are not my people, so it will be said to a future generation, children of the living God. Just as there is division now, there will be reunification later. Just as there is devastation now, there will be harvest and flourishing later. Now, a thoughtful reader will want to think through the various ways in which this prophecy has been and will be realized. Most scholars suggest that a partial realization of this prophecy was experienced in the near future of the nation from the perspective of the prophet. In the years leading up to the fall of Samaria in 722 BC, a great many Israelites immigrated down into Judah, probably because of this message, at least in part. They recognized the apostasy of the nation, and as a faithful remnant, they rejoined themselves to the legitimate body of faithful Jews under the Davidic dynasty. And that is why there really is no such thing as the ten lost tribes of Israel. For one thing, it would be nine, not ten, as most of the Levites had already immigrated down into Judah, which also included Benjamin. But then also, there were people from every northern tribe as part of this later migration. So, there was a reunification of sorts in the near future. But the greater fulfillment of this prophecy is understood in the New Testament as referring to the ingrafting of the Gentiles as children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Hosea is quoted in this sense by both Paul and Peter. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9-10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Closed quote. Paul says in Romans 9, 24 to 26, he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God, closed quote. So it is absolutely indisputable that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, the ultimate restoration and reunification and enlargement of Israel took place through the new covenant that was inaugurated through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By faith in him, the Gentiles, who once were not a people, have been made children of the living God. And they, together with their Jewish brothers and sisters who also put faith in Christ, are as numerous as the sand of the sea. They shall grow up and flourish, and they shall be established in the earth. On that point, the vast majority of believing scholars are agreed. But as to whether or not there is still a further restoration of ethnic Israel and a subsequent regrafting of them into the multi-ethnic tree, on that point there is mystery and continuing dialogue. The Apostle Paul seems to hint at this in the same section of his letter in which he identified the Gentile church as being the great expansion and ultimate reunification prophesied in Hosea. In that same section, he said, speaking of ethnic Israel, they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. Closed quote, Romans 11, 23 to 24. So, a great disaster is coming, says the prophet Hosea in the 8th century BC, followed by a severe purge, which likely surpassed even his own inspired imagination, which, however, will ultimately result in a purified, refined, and massively enlarged, fruitful, and faithful covenant people, which may be yet even greater and more glorious than it appears to us at present. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also find us on Facebook. I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. Just put in the search bar into the Word, and you should find us. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word.